All right, morning, Redeemer. Um, it's good to be back uh, up here, and not in elder capacity. So uh, we'll see how this goes. Uh, we're uh, for those that are new. Um, <clears throat> we're actually walking through this uh, uh, series uh, through the Book of Psalms called Exhale, and essentially uh, the main idea behind these, uh, the series is um, what can we learn from the psalmist and the uh, from the psalmist and the other biblical writers as we. Uh, look at the theology that they have captured in, uh, in the writings of the book of Psalms as they inhaled life around them, the good, the bad, the ugly. As they inhaled those, they put down theology that we get to read and, and process our own realities through, uh, through, that, through those lens. And so we've been walking through uh, multiple Psalms um, over the last few uh, weeks, and we're in Psalm 8 this morning. So if you don't mind, please turn your Bibles uh, to Psalm chapter 8. Um, and by way of introduction, uh, Psalm 8 actually, um, believe it or not, is the first Psalm in the book of Psalm that expresses praise, right? You, you typically think of um, all of the Psalms in the book of Psalms to be praise Psalms, but really it's the, uh, chapter 8 is the first time we actually see uh, a psalm of praise appearing in this series. And so, let's uh, read uh, Psalm chapter 8, and as I read it, feel free to follow it on the screen or on your, uh, on your Bible. I would um, encourage, if you do have a Bible, to open to it, whether it's digital or paper copy, uh, because I want you to pay attention to how the psalm is structured uh, as I read through it. Um, there's a, a clear structure as we read through it that will jump out at you, so I think it would be helpful if you look at, look at an actual copy where you can see all nine verses at the same time. But if you don't, please f- feel free to follow along on the screen. <clears throat> Ready? Psalm chapter 8, uh, David writes, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I think the first thing I want to kind of draw your attention to is the title that you probably see in your Bibles. Uh, I'm reading from an ESV translation, and my my title says, How Majestic is Your Name? Uh, And that's a that's a good title. Uh, I think it's an okay title. Uh, I think if you read the NASB, um, uh, the title uh, to Psalm 8 says, The Lord's Glory and Man's Dignity. The Lord's Glory and Man's Dignity. I think that title is a little bit more descriptive of what David is talking about here in Psalm chapter 8. And I think this uh, title captures a lot of what David is trying to communicate to us uh, as we process through his lens of, uh, as he praises God. The 
kind of, uh, he begins uh, Psalm chapter 8, once you get past the title, is uh, in Psalm chapter 8, eight verses 1, he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He begins the psalm of praise, the first one in his series, with God's majesty. He's expressing or orienting himself or declaring God's majesty. Um, another interesting thing, if you, as you look at uh, chapter 8, um, you'll see that this is the first time that uh, David is using this language, corporate language of our Lord. If you look at ch- the chapters uh, 1 through 7, um, 1 and 2, uh, Psalm 1 and 2 essentially serve as an introduction to the book of Psalm. But if you start in chapter 3, um, and I'll just quickly read some of the first lines here. It says, uh, Psalm chapter 3 says, O Lord, how many are my foes? And 4, he says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Chapter 5 says, give ear to my words, O Lord. And 6 says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, not discipline me in your wrath. And 7 says, O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. But once he gets to Psalm chapter 8, David says, O Lord, our Lord. I think the corporate sense that he's addressing here is important for us as we look at this chapter. It's, David is not just making a declaration, but rather he's making a corporate declaration. Uh, he was probably king at this time, we're not 100% sure, but as a, as a king himself, he is looking and addressing God as, O Lord, our Lord. And you look at the first line, you're probably wondering, why does two words that appear next to each other look different, right? right? If you're probably looking at your translation, the first Lord is all caps, but the second Lord is only the L is capitalized, right? Yes? No, it's not. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, and you know, what you're looking at is one of the deficiencies of the English language. Uh, what, uh, what the translators are trying to capture where, uh, in, in the best way they can is to capture two different Hebrew words that may mean about the same thing. The first Lord, the all caps, is the word Yahweh. It's how the Bible refers to as God. It's the great I Am. Uh, it is the God uh, that, has, that brought the Israelites out of um, Egypt that created the world. The second Lord there actually refers to the word Adonai. And Adonai actually is more of a title, if you will. And it, it stands for king or master or um, somebody who is a ruler. Essentially, that's what David is talking about uh, or making, uh, declaring here. Uh, David is, in these opening lines, is talking or addressing God as the one true king who has ultimate authority. And as he is doing that, uh, he's not just praising God, he's actually orienting himself to God's proper authority. He's orienting himself as God's proper authority. If you look, if you look um, at the next line, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Uh, he goes on to talk about how as king of the world, king of this, all of creation, you, your majesty is expressed in all of the earth. And brothers and sisters, that's where we must begin in our own uh, lives, by properly orienting ourselves around God's authority. And we do this by allowing God to have proper and central authority in our own lives. Uh, I've often said this before, but I think it's bear, um, it bears worth repeating, that the most important belief you have in your life is about what you believe about God. 
the most important belief you have in your life is what you believe about God. Because, as you can imagine, what you believe about God, good, bad, apathy, whatever it is that you believe about God, will orient the rest of your life. It will essentially shape how the rest of your life looks like. And I won't spend a lot of time here for the, for the sake of time, but if you want to see what an improper orientation to God bears out, you can look at Psalm chapter 14. And you don't have to turn there, but um, scholars believe Psalm 14 parallel is a parallel to Psalm chapter 8. But just to give you a little bit of a flavor, Psalm 14 begins this way. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And what does that orientation create? The psalmist says they are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, and there is none who does good. Quite a contrast, isn't it? Psalm chapter 8, Psalm chapter 14. That how we orient ourselves, how we orient our lives around God's authority will shape the rest of our lives. And that's what David is expressing here as he declares God's majesty. I think, I think it's safe to say nothing in our lives will make sense unless this orientation is properly set. You know, um, our joys, our sorrows, our difficulties, uh, our identity all essentially fall out of place when this orientation is not properly set. Now, some of us try to compensate um, with our jobs, our hobbies, our families, our marriages, and all those are good things. Our sexuality, our identity, all those are good things but all those things will eventually give way because they're not strong enough to be a proper foundation for who, how we're created to be. And so David, kind of setting God's majestic name or declaring God's majestic name, goes on to declare God's majestic power. God's majestic power. We look at the verse, verse 2. He says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the Avenger. Now, this is a popular phrase, right? Anytime a kid says something smart or, you know, that we want to amen, we say, what do we say? Well, out of the mouth of babes, right? What is David trying to say here? Well, I think David, uh, now there's, uh, it's a little bit of a, um, since, since the psalm is, the psalms are generally poetry, and we don't want to read too much into what he's trying to say. Um, but I think what the psalmist is trying to say here is he's giving us an insight into how God works. And, by, and he's trying to do that by giving us a contrast of how God works. God's using the image of babbling babies or helpless infants to tell us that God uses those types of helpless human beings to bring about his will. That he uses, he uses the image of babies and infants to remind us this is how God will defeat his enemies. And God's, David picks basically the most helpless human beings um, to, make this, to make this picture. Um, since, having, since having kids myself, um, it, it's, uh, I think I've probably started paying more attention to how the Bible portrays children. Right, and, it, and I think I've mentioned this before, it is quite baffling to me how positively the Bible portrays children, and not just children, but rather that we as adults and grown-ups, how we are to emulate them, right? And, and, and David does the same thing here. This passage actually, uh, is, uh, Jesus refers to this passage in Matthew chapter 21 when he, uh, um, 
in Matthew chapter 21 where he's healed. You don't have to turn there, but uh, Jesus heals uh, people, the lepers, and the, he heals the blind, and he's going into the temple, and uh, the narrative records that the children are crying praise. They're crying Hosanna, They're, which essentially says, God save us, right? And the Pharisees come to him and tell him, do you hear what they're saying? Tell them to be quiet. And Jesus quotes this passage there. And we know the story about the par- uh, parable of the, uh, um, where Jesus is teaching and the disciples are trying to keep the children away from their rabbi. And Jesus says, essentially chastises them and says, let them come to me. Because for them, to be like them, to be childlike, is what it means to participate in God's kingdom. And so Jesus and the biblical writers paint children as this picture of what we are, what we, what we must, of how we must emulate, how we must relate to God. And David does the same thing here. And David is telling us that God hears the cry of the helpless and distressed children who have nothing going for them but are completely dependent on God and will use that to put down his enemies. We'll use that to establish his stronghold. We'll use that to uh, destroy his enemies. So in this first stanza, these first two verses that make up that stanza, David is talking about God's majestic name and God's majestic power, how he uses the helpless to bring about his will. In the second stanza, which is made up of verses three and four, David talks about how God cares for human. God cares for man. Uh, I had some uh, family travel from America to India kind of as, uh, um, uh, as part of their vacation, and they had done this tour around India, um, and they sent us some pictures um, of uh, the Taj Mahal, um, and um, we were looking at the, Lindsay and I were looking at the pictures, and Ezra always wants to see what we're doing, so he jumps in, and it's like, what is that? And uh, I, I have a picture here of the Taj Mahal, if you haven't seen it. It is one of the uh, um, top wonders, number one wonder in the world. Uh, but the Taj Mahal essentially represents, um, uh, or, or Ezra was like, what is that? I was like, it's a palace. I was like, oh, does a king and a queen live there? And I was like, well, actually, uh, it's a tomb. Uh, it was built by a king in honor of um, his queen, and he did that after she passed away. Uh, and if you look at the scale of this, there's another picture here. If you look at how big this is, can you imagine that this is a tomb, right? And so here's Ezra trying to process why uh, a king is building a palace for dead people, and he's processing. I was like, I don't know, kid. I, I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't do it, but this is what he did. Um, but you can sense that uh, bewilderment that my son was facing here as David is expressing his bewilderment as he looks at the heavens, something much more glorious than any wonder in the world. Uh, and David expresses it in this way. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, David is expressing and there's so much packaged in here, but just to point a few things, David talks about how God uses his fingers, essentially uh, communicating how God elegantly and effortlessly and creatively put the stars in place. And he says, as I look at all of this, I'm bewildered, essentially you can sense this in David's words, why you're manful, or, or sorry, manful, why you're mindful of man, of why you care for man. And as um, 
as you remember and read the story, we are reminded um, of what passage in the Bible. As you, as you look at this passage, it says, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what comes to mind as you read David's words there? What passage in the Bible? What other passage in the Bible? Genesis, right? Genesis 1. This is the language of Genesis 1. What is David echoing? Gen- David is echoing the, how God created and put the cosmos in place in Genesis chapter 1. Remember, in the, in the, original, the original reader uh, of, of, of the scriptures, they didn't have something packaged like this. I think I've mentioned this before. You know, they had scrolls. They had, Genesis had multiple scrolls. Psalms had multiple scrolls. So when they wanted to make reference to another part of the Bible, what did they do? They just quoted those passages to be able to uh, help... Um, describe what they were thinking. And so as we read those words, we are to bring what we've learned in those passages into this passage so that we can get a full context of what David is talking about here. But if you look at Genesis chapter 1, again, we're not going to turn there, but Genesis 1 describes God as the creator of the world, and he also describes the unique place that human beings are to play in this creation. And so, as David is expressing in verse 3, when I look at the heavens and all the heavenly bodies in the night, why do you care about man? As you can imagine, I mean, we know so much more about the universe now than we did when David penned these words, don't we? We know that there's billions of stars in our galaxy and that there are billions of galaxies. I mean, David didn't know any of this and he penned these words, but they're so much or even more relevant to us today. And so as we share, I think all of us share David's amazement here, is that when we look at pictures of our galaxy and our night sky and the world around us, I know I feel very small and insignificant. I think that's what, I think this is what David is capturing here. And David is saying not only does God care for these human beings, but rather he also crowns us with glory and honor. Isn't that what he says in Uh, Verse 5, he says, Yet you have made them a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. It is, David is expressing this language that God sees us kings and queens like him. Materialists or scientists generally call us as the highest, you know, or the most advanced animal. We're at the top of the animal food chain. Uh, but the way um, the psalmist describes us is we're a little lower than heavenly beings. Right? And I think both of those capture some important aspect of who we are. I think while we have a material body that allows us to live and rule the world around us, uh, we are to rise from our material beginnings to the spiritual reality that God has in mind for us, the spiritual reality that is present all around us. So God made us a little lower than divine, but we are made in the image of God, our creator. And he has destined us to be kings and queens along with him, ruling over the creation that he's given us responsibility over. Now, I mean, the obvious needs to be said, right? He could have picked the angels. They were more capable than us. He could have picked other heavenly beings, uh, but he didn't pick any of those. He picked us human beings, essentially dirt creatures, to rule the world that he wanted us, that he created. So God cares for human beings. He crowns human beings. And finally, he commissions the human beings. 
Look at verse 6 here. It says, you've given him dominion over the work of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also beasts of the field. The birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Now, David uh, uses this word dominion. Uh, it is the same language that we see in Genesis chapter 1, verses 28. Um, but dominion probably has a little bit of a negative connotation in our context, and I don't think it was me- uh, the word is meant to communicate anything negative, but rather uh, the word may, um, was just to communicate a rule or authority. Uh, a better word may be uh, to call us rulers or stewards of the world that God has put us in charge. And this, again... Uh, is echoing back to the cultural mandate that God sets in place in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. And we'll look at that if we have time here. But I just want to talk a little bit about the sheep and the oxen and all of that business going on down there. I think it's important. You know, I grew up as a city boy. I grew up in uh, a populated city in, uh, in the Middle East. And then I immigra- when we immigrated, I, spent, I went to school and lived in New York City. Um, and then I moved to Dallas. Uh, my wife, on the other hand, she kind of grew up in small, uh, um, in small cities around uh, Texas while her dad pastored small churches. And so the first chance she got to get out of small city, county, she did. She went to college in the city, and she's uh, never wanted to go back or live in anything that looked, resembled that. Um, so uh, then that kind of describes the tension we constantly have in our marriage about where we must live and how we must vacation, right? What we pick for vacation and how we must live. Um, And so, I don't know, if I wanted to stay married, I don't see ruling sheep or cattle in my future, um, and I plan plan to stay married. So, uh, and I I suspect most of you don't um, plan on ruling sheep or cattle. Uh, I mean, no, we have uh, hunters and uh, fishermen in in our congregation, but those are all hobbies, right? They wouldn't want to do that for a living. But uh, this is the same. Uh, so what is David trying to capture here as he's talking about sheep and oxen and uh, birds and, sea, uh, and fish of the sea? Well, what David is describing here is the role that we have been assigned as human beings on earth by God. And that is to rule it. And so for the original audience, the description of sheep and oxen and birds and fish, again, echoes back to Genesis chapter 1. It would have described everything that existed on earth. It was kind of an image that they would have recognized, oh, this means we are to rule everything on this earth. For us, that looks quite different today, doesn't it? As modern readers, uh, this includes computers, the internet, um, machinery, airplanes, cars, um, nuclear, uh, nuclear energy, right? The atom, we've basically... Um, are, as modern readers, we must translate that God has intended to give, put us in charge of these things uh, as modern readers. Um, and I think that's how God has intended it from the beginning. Uh, some, some people believe that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, 28, when God gives the cultural mandate, rule, uh, let's just actually, let me actually just read there. You don't have to turn, I'll read it for you. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, he says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have, I have given you every plant yielding seed, 
that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And so here's the, here, this is what uh, biblical authors call the cultural mandate, or we commonly call the cultural mandate. Essentially, it's God uh, giving man responsibility over his creation. And so some, I, uh, sometimes we can mistakenly believe that after the fall, that somehow the cultural mandate was negated. And I don't think that, uh, that the Bible teaches us that. Um, now, it does teach us that it will be much more harder, right? And the, uh, one of the curses of the fall is that we'll have to deal with thorns and we'll have to sweat, etc., right? Uh, and so those are our, our, um, our ruling has become more difficult, but we are still expected to rule. And that's essentially what David is capturing here as he's describing these uh, dominion and areas that we are to have dominion over in verses 6 and 7. Now, there's a lot of theological viewpoints around what we mean by um, why we are given this uh, mandate. And I think one of the big reasons is because we are created in the image of God. And just as we, God is ruler over the entire universe and everything that has been created, uh, seen and unseen, He has put us as kings and queens as, and, and rulers over the things that we see on earth. And this is the function we are to pr- play as rulers on the earth. Um, and so I believe that uh, when we think about the image of God, what do we mean by that? What, how, how do we actually image God? I think the way we image God is in function. That we image God just as God is ruler, we image God by ruling the areas that He has given responsibility over. Now, I won't have time to um, a- expound on that, and I'm happy to answer questions later about it, but uh, based on the mandate in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, I believe that this is what we're expected to do, and that this is what we're called to do, uh, is to steward the world around us. If you look around the world, I mean, even 100, from 100 years ago, uh, all the advances that we've made, we've uh, pulled out millions of people out of poverty, we've, um, uh, we've healed and eradicated diseases, we've learned to uh, unlocked energy locked in earth and build machinery that has uh, allowed us to farm and feed millions of people. And it's mind-blowing to see where we've come. We've gone to the moon. We've um, planned to go to Mars at some point. Uh, we've uh, essentially uh, helped millions and millions of people. We've translated the scriptures into multiple languages. So technology in the world around us has gotten better and better over the last, uh, since human beings have been on this earth. And that is our purpose as God's, as God's representatives on this earth. Now, it hasn't been without its problems, as we all can imagine, right? The, uh, but the world, generally speaking, is significantly safer and a better place for us today than it was 100 years ago, let alone when David penned these words in Psalm chapter 8. But by, looking at, by restating what he said in Psalm uh, verse 1, and he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And that, and that I think, is, should bring us back to the ultimate authority that rules over our own lives. Because it doesn't matter what we build or create or uh, do, without proper orientation towards God as the ultimate authority, as our foundation, all of this will be turned against us. It will dissolve into chaos. And that is why I believe the psalmist ends the psalm with the same declaration of God's majesty. 
Man cannot be good rulers or fulfill their purpose on this earth if he's not under God's rule. His own, our own wisdom is limited, and that is why we need to be properly grounded in God to flourish. But when man is properly oriented towards God, he becomes God's agent, and he's able to reveal God's glory and God's honor on this earth. We become reflections of God on earth. So it's, how do we live all this out, uh, all this theology that, we, that David is capturing here in Psalm chapter 8? So I have two things that I want to uh, talk about here as we kind of finish up for, uh, for today. So as David is looking around the world in all of its beauty and all of its brokenness, and he exhales some heavy theology of God's majesty as revealed through man's dignity on earth. And this is how we must see our own lives. We must see our roles in the world as agents of God, whether it's in our homes, as parents, or our schools, our offices, our hospitals, our churches, our city halls, it's um, our neighborhoods. I was just, again, I think as, as uh, Shannon was praying this uh, in our corporate prayer time about us being those uh, representatives of God, I think this is what uh, David is capturing here too. And, you know, Jesus describes this same um, tension or the same idea in, in, in the Beatitudes and in the Gospels. Um, he, he, uh, he says uh, in Matthew, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. What is, what is he trying to capture with those language? He's trying to say that we've been placed in our roles and been given role in the areas that uh, we are over on purpose. It's not a coincidence. It's not an accident. It's on purpose. And this is how we are to image God. All right, let's look at two ways we are to live out this calling for our lives. Two ways that we can apply this theology in our own lives. And first, it is to establish rhythms of worship and praise in our own homes and lives. Establish rhythms of worship in our own homes and lives. Just like the psalmist is praising God, I think it is important for us to do the same in public and as, as much as possible in ways that incorporate our own whole family. Oftentimes, I know I fall into the... Um, Temptation of just, you know, trying to squeeze my uh, quiet time or my time with God uh, before the kids wake up or after the kids go to bed. And I think, you know, that's necessary for certain seasons of life. But as much as possible, Lindsay and I have been talking about this idea of incorporating our own kids into these, into these activities as we praise God. It may be, you know, we, as we've come out of a season of vacations, going to the beach or going to the mountains or really just going to the backyard and looking at the stars, or reading the Psalms as you're looking at the stars and reminding or reflecting to your kids what it looks like to worship God, to, to have a sense of uh, an environment of praising God and worshiping God as part of our family's DNA and continue to incorporate that whether in small ways or large ways. It may be singing worship songs. It may be reading the Psalms out loud as a family. And your kids may not want to participate, but being around that will remind them just and, and uh, reflect that as, as a family, we want to praise God and give God His majesty. I think that rhythm can get neglected if we don't, we're not, we don't purposefully put it in place. And I think one of the fastest ways to properly orient our lives is to look at the sky, isn't it? As we look at a beautiful mountain or the stars, we are reminded of God's majesty and our smallness. And I think time to time, I think it's important lives we can feel like, we're on top of the world, or we're not the top of the world. But whatever it is, I think properly orienting ourselves 
by looking at the night sky, I think is a good way and a quick and cheap way to quickly figure out how God's big and we're not. So establishing rhythms of worship and praise is one way we can apply this theology in our own lives. Second, I think uh, it is to partner with God in prayer. Partner with God in prayer. Um, as I was kind of thinking about this uh, in our um, Psalm chapter 8 and thinking about prayer and partnering with God, um, I've just been reminded this summer about how um, prayer is one of the key ways that God has designed for us to partner with God. And there's a lot of things that I want to say about prayer, but it's already 11.30, so, and I don't want to keep you all too much longer, but I want to just look at one specific aspect about prayer, and that is this aspect of asking in prayer, right? Now, there, again, there's lots of things to say about prayer, but asking in prayer is one of the things that I want to focus on in this context. Again, as, pr- as rulers, prayer is one of, the, uh, one of the key ways we are to partner with God. We have no hope of fulfilling the commission, this commission that we just read about, that God has given us as co-rulers if we don't rely on Him for His power and His wisdom. And prayer is this arrangement that we have to partner with Him so that we can rule well and as we carry out our responsibilities. Dallas Willard says something about prayer that I find very relevant in this context, and he describes prayer as such. He says, prayer is talking and listening to God but what we are doing together. Let me repeat that, because I think it was so helpful for me. Prayer is talking and listening to God about what we are doing together. There's oftentimes, I think, in my own life, I find myself swinging between two extremes. On one extreme, and I don't think either of these are helpful, to pray a lot, right? I, I feel guilty when I don't pray about big decisions in my life, when I don't, do certain, I don't pray over certain things. Being honest here, right? That's one end. And the other end, I, I swing between that and on the other end, just resigning to fatalism. It's like, well, God knows what he needs to do and God is good and so he will do what he needs to do. Why do I need to pray about it, right? You find yourself swinging between these two, right? It's like, what is the point uh, of praying and asking? And so we find ourselves either overwhelmed or apathetic. I think either of those extremes keep us from having a vibrant prayer life. So I'll deal with the whole idea of being overwhelmed. The whole idea of fatalism we'll have to deal with some other time um, because we won't have time. But if, if we're to take Psalm 8 seriously, though, we're to take God's role for us seriously. And we can confidently believe that some things are under our control. And God has given us the discretion and the direction to act. We don't need to pray about those things. Blaise Pascal, the Christian philosopher, once said, God has dignified man with causality. It says, God has dignified man with causality. And I think uh, some, let me explain it this way. Um, there are times where I find myself sitting at home on the couch, relaxing, right? And I see my daughter walking around the house with a saggy diaper, right? And um, what do you think? Do I have to pray about if I should if it's the right time to change the diaper or if I should wait for my wife to intervene, should I pray about it? I don't think so. It is within my rule and responsibility to do, to change her diaper, so I just need to do it. Um, if you are wondering if you should um, serve your spouse, I can tell you, you don't have to pray about it. Just go ahead and serve them. 
if you are praying about serving as a ministry volunteer, you're a redeemer. Don't need to pray about it. Just go ahead and serve. If you're that concerned about it, just tell God to let you know when you need to, you need to stop serving. But go ahead and serve, because those are things that God has given us and expects us to do. We don't need to pray about those things. This is part of how God has designed us as His representatives. God rejoices when we rule well, when we reach out to a neighbor, when we serve our neighbor, when we love on them, when we love our families and we, uh, we sacrifice. He's not upset at us for ex- exercising the rule and authority He has given us in a way that honors Him and glorifies Him. But not everything in our lives falls in this category, right? Especially when it comes to other people, right? When it comes to other people, it becomes more and more challenging. Those things, other people are outside our, our rule of responsibility. We don't have the power to change people. And that's where this power of asking, I think, comes in. Suppose you have a family member who is an unbeliever or is sick or a, a, a child that is rebellious. Those are outside of our rule of responsibility because we can't change people. And some of you know those desperation, that feeling that comes with those situations and our, in, and our inability to fix them. We wish we could fix them. We wish we could uh, alleviate the suffering of our family members um, or change, our, um, change the addictions in our family members or help them. But this is where we acknowledge our limitations and we turn to God in prayer and trust Him for those outcomes. And this is one of the most important things that we are to ask. And we're to ask, uh, ask God in prayer. We're to partner with God in prayer. This summer has been a, has been a uh, difficult summer for us uh, at our house. Uh, I think it started out with um, one of our family members uh, on suicide watch and then have a friend, close friend having a preemie baby and then uh, Lindsay's dad going to the hospital for heart failure and uh, the same friend, my, one of my close friends having um, um, a medical condition that he had to be admitted to the hospital for that was life-threatening. And then find out that our, our family, close family member, that uh, my aunt who raised me passed away. And, um, and then as we, uh, um, as we were, as in life group, we had families that were going through their own struggles and partnering with them. And all of this, uh, we find our, we, Lindsay and I found ourselves having a lot of conversations that ended with, we're going to be praying for you. We're going to be praying for you. And I felt this tension about not having anything to do other than pray. This tension of not being able to fix it. And I think the, uh, the idea that we, uh, that kind of God brought back to my mind is God bringing back to my mind about how I must rely on God in these situations. That I'm, I must partner with God because God is in control. And I must partner with Him as I bring my requests and petitions and asks before Him. So it's been, a, it's, been, it's been hard, but it's also been really sweet of learning to trust in God's grace and keeping my eyes on Him. I noticed that as I regularly prayed for these requests, some for me, some for others, I recognized that God was directing and speaking and I think it brought this light bulb moment to me that this is how God intended to work in our lives. 
that we are not to be completely fatalistic or overwhelmed, but rather we are to do what we know, but trust God with the outcomes, that we are to rely on Him in prayer, that we are to go to Him in prayer. That has re-energized my own prayer life. I think there's, uh, again, I grew up with this, uh, hearing this, and I don't know if it was explicitly said, or rather it was just kind of um, unsaid, but rather there's a sense that when we pray and we ask for things, that somehow that's a lower form of prayer, that somehow if we pray and ask for things that we are being selfish or too self-centered. And I, I just want to tell you that that's not the picture that the Bible paints for us. Uh, if you study the prayers in the Bible, including the uh, prayers that Jesus puts out in the Bi- uh, uh, has recorded in the Bible, we see Him asking. There's a lot of asking. So I just want to encourage you as believers, as brothers and sisters, to not be hesitant to God in prayer and ask God as you carry out your responsibilities. Now, you may start with asking and God may redirect, right? But leave that up to Him. Don't worry about uh, what he's about to do. He's, he's got that under control. But don't let that keep you from praying. And if you're like me, you're not sure, sure of your motives or you think it's selfish, if you're not sure about what, if you're praying for the right things, I would say just keep praying. Ask the Lord to teach you, and I promise you, he will teach you. Because if you don't pray for the things that concern you the most, which are often the things that are happening in our own lives, we'll never get to a consistent, healthy prayer life. Because as rulers, we've been assigned by God. We are responsible over the areas that we're to rule over, and we're to pray for the things that concern us. Because again, like I mentioned, praying is what God and I are doing together. Remember, this is not something you came up with. This is how God's commissioned you. This is the role God's put you in, and you're not alone in this endeavor. There's lots of passages that come to mind, as, even as Jesus repeats this, but Him being with us as we go about our lives. And when we pray and God answers, what ends up happening is we become conduits of God's grace and glory in the lives of the people around us as we see God's faithfulness being expressed. But God expects us to ask Him and receive from Him. He knows we can't walk this life with all its troubles and trials without grace and help from Him. So this is God's arrangement for us to grow in trust in Him and for us to become the people that He wants us to become. So after you pray for things, watch for God's action. How does God act? Sometimes we pray and we just move on, right? Like maybe we just need to pay, stop and pay a little bit of attention. How has God answered those prayers? And we should expect Him to move. He may not move in the way we, ex- we want, in the timing that He wants, or in the direction that He wants. But even in those cases, we can trust in the goodness of God. We can trust and rest in Him because He is the ultimate majesty. He's the ultimate authority. He is the ultimate creator. And our authority and rule and lives are under His rule. And when we are properly oriented towards that, we can rest in that, in that, um, in that goodness of uh, God. There's so much more to say here, but I'll also have to wait for another time. So let me just pray as we kind of close our time today. Father, we thank you for the words that the psalmist records here in Psalm chapter 8. As we reflect on, as he reflects on your majesty and the, in the way you care for us as human beings, 
in spite of all of the other wonderful creations you have. You've chosen men and women to be frail human beings, dirt creatures that have been elevated to a status by you. You care for us, you crown us with glory, and you commission us. I pray that these, that we, do, we will not neglect this reality in our own lives, that we do not neglect that we are to be salt and light in the places that we have put us in place. As, as we uh, come out of the summer and uh, teachers begin school and students begin um, school and as we kind of go back into this, uh, into a busy fall, pray that you continue to give us the wisdom and eyes to see what you're doing in the realms that you've put us in place. Whether it's in our home, in our church, in our um, in our workplaces, in our communities. Help us to pay attention. Help us to take this commission seriously. Help us to rely on you in areas that we feel like we are failing. Help us to look to you. We're not disappointed in us when we fail, but we, we know that those are opportunities for us to turn to you, to look to you, to rely on you. Because you've put us in place where you want us to be. It's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. So we trust. We trust in you. We look to you for grace. We look to you for wisdom. Help us to properly orient our lives around you. As we go out this week and we have jobs to go to and uh, bills to pay and all the responsibilities that may overwhelm us, pray that you give us wisdom give us purpose and give our eyes to see of what you're doing in all of these areas. We ask all this in Jesus' name.